We can open to Jonah. I used to watch a show called River Monsters. I don't know if any of you guys have seen the show River Monsters. It's a, it's a fishing show where the host goes around and, he, and he, he hears these stories in different parts of the world of fish that have attacked humans, and then he'll go and he'll try to catch the fish that was big enough to attack a human. And, and oddly enough, in every episode, it's the last fish of the day that happens to be the biggest fish. But part of, part of this series is to go and actually interview the people that were attacked by the fish, interview the, the survivors. And you know, some of the, most of them express some sort of thankfulness that they're alive, but I didn't see one episode where somebody said, you know what, when I got attacked by that fish, that was the best day of my life. But if we were to, if we were to sort of shoot a, a documentary of Jonah, and his experience, and we were to interview him as a survivor of somebody who's been swallowed by a a great fish, that's exactly what he would say. And that's the words we have before us this morning. His story would be that getting swallowed by that enormous fish was one of the best things that ever happened to him. That's because, as we've been saying, that fish in in 117 is God's rescue uh, device. The Lord appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. It's actually a fantastic demonstration of the grace and mercy of God. And so what we have in Jonah chapter 2 is a, a, really a psalm of thanksgiving or a prayer of thanksgiving from the belly of the fish. That's what, that's what it says there in verse 1. Jonah prays from the belly of the fish. And so we hear Jonah's recollection of his desperate Plight is his desperation in the water, his calling out for mercy, and God's answering his call for mercy through the fish, God's grace, gracious salvation. So as we look at the words of Jonah, we, we hear the praise that belongs to God. We hear thankfulness in his voice. We hear relief that he's been rescued. And this all culminates at the end of verse 9 with Jonah saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so what I want to do this morning is sort of trace through, uh, I almost said Psalm 2, Jonah 2, and, and see what would, what would lead him to say those words, that salvation belongs to the Lord. That certainly isn't the conclusion of many in our world today. Many would say that salvation belongs to you. It's whatever you want to believe salvation is. It's whatever you want to uh, do with that doctrine. Whatever you want to believe in. Some would say that salvation belongs to you and God together as you sort of participate. He, he helps those who help themselves. So why don't you do some good works and he'll give you some grace for, for when you can't do good works. And So salvation belongs to you and to the Lord. So what would lead Jonah to say it belongs to the Lord? And then in the end, I want to see what... What difference does it make? So our first point this morning, salvation belongs to the Lord because He alone can save. Because He alone can save. Jonah has not been shy about the desperation of his situation. Remember, the sailors understood that to throw Jonah overboard was to effectively kill him. We argued last week that 
Jonah understood this. In that, in that moment, Jonah would rather die than be obedient to God's mission and to God's word. So Jonah chapter 1 ends with, with Jonah being thrown overboard and with Jonah being swallowed by this great fish. And so Jonah recalls for us here that as his life is waning, he prays to the Lord and the Lord answers him. Jonah is sort of like the prodigal son that we looked at in Luke chapter 15 who, who was longing for the food that the pigs were eating because he was in such a desperate plight. And, and Luke said he, he came to his senses. And that's sort of what we get in Jonah. He came to his senses, he remembered the Lord, and he called out on Yahweh. So what we have in verse 2 is like this overview statement. Verse 2 kind of tells you what happened. And then verses 3 through 7 sort of pause, rewind, slow motion replay of what happened. All right, so look there in verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So even in this overview verse, verse 2, we, we hear of the desperate situation that Jonah found himself in. He says, it was out of my distress that I called upon the Lord. Well, what's his distress? Well, he's, he's drowning. He's dying. He's on death's doorstep. He says, in fact, that I cried out from the belly of Sheol. Well, we've used that word before in, in, in Jonah. What, what's Sheol? Well, sometimes Sheol, and if you, you might find that in the Psalms, you might find in other places in, in the Old Testament specifically. Sometimes Sheol just means the grave. Somebody's going to die. It's, it, it sometimes has a kind of a neutral connotation, like you're dead. But oftentimes, in the Old Testament, Sheol is, is spoken of as a place where the wicked dwell while, the, while they await the future final judgment. And that's the way that Jonah seems to be talking in chapter 2. It seems that, that he's not just afraid to die, but he's actually afraid that he will be separated from the Lord. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because that's sort of what Jonah's been wanting. He got up in chapter 1 to flee from the presence of the Lord, and as he's sinking, he's terrified that he's going to receive the thing that he wants. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, he should have said to God, your will be done. But when he got up and he went to flee from the presence of the Lord, he's in danger of hearing from the Lord, Jonah, your will be done. And he realizes it. I might be out of the presence of the Lord. I wonder if you recognize this morning that one of the ways that God demonstrates his wrath, now, now we, we understand that there's a future final judgment that we talk about, but I wonder if you, you understand that one of the ways that God exercises and demonstrates his wrath today is to say to people, your will be done. You can go your own way. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. It says, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
One of the worst things God can do, one of the worst things we said in chapter 1 that he could have done to Jonah is just let him keep going. And one of the worst things God can do is say, you know what, fulfill your own desires, do your own thing. Because sin is so destructive that we will destroy ourselves. If you aren't trusting in Christ this morning, you may be convinced that, that freedom and autonomy is what's really going to satisfy, it's what's really going to bring you joy if I can just live my life my way, fulfill my desires, indulge every impulse. Isn't that what the world tells us? Anybody that's in the way of you indulging this, this desire that you have, the, this impulse that you have, if they're in the way of that, they don't love you and they hate you. Right? You may be tempted to, to believe that, that real freedom, real joy, real satisfaction is if I could just get out from underneath God's authority, if I could just flee from God's presence. But the warning of Scripture is the very thing you might want is the very thing you should be afraid of, to be absent from God's presence. See, Jonah's afraid that he's going to receive the thing that he thought he wanted most. And he becomes distressed. That he might actually be barred from God's presence. The, 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 the gates of Sheol are closing behind him. The bars coming down. He might get the very thing he was running after. And what Jonah admits and confesses in our psalm this morning is that he is completely and utterly helpless to help himself. Look at verse 5. Look at the way he describes the situation. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Jonah speaks of himself as if he's, he's in this watery prison. The waters have closed around him. He's surrounded on all sides by the, the depth, by these deep waters. So he's become entangled in, in seaweed that's wrapped itself around his head. Eventually, he's, he says he's, he's sunk to the, to, to the roots of the mountain. Right? That's where, like, the, at the ocean floor where the land would start to kind of come up to form an island or, or a continent. Like, he's... He's in the depths of the water. He is completely hopeless. The bars of the gates of Sheol are closing behind him. He's in a fortress, a fortress with no escape. It looks as if death has won, and Jonah will simply endure the consequences that he thought he would get when he ran from the presence of the Lord. That's what it looks like. So our point in point number one is that salvation belongs to the Lord because God alone can save. And we see in the way that Jonah describes his situation that he's in quite the predicament. That there's absolutely nothing that, that he can do. He can't swim to the surface. He's entangled. He doesn't have a respirator. He's done. He can't even force the Lord to act, right? He can't cause the Lord to do it. No creature has that ability to kind of twist the Lord's arm. We don't have that right. And Jonah has no claim against God. Right? He's done nothing that he can appeal to to say, God, you should bail me out because of X, Y, and Z. He has nothing of his own resources to rely on. He has no good deed to which he can appeal. He cannot save himself. 
He is completely and utterly helpless. So only the Lord saves, and we see that in Jonah's like complete and utter helplessness. But in verse 8, there's something else that Jonah says cannot save. Look there in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. There's something else that, that cannot save, and Jonah calls them their vain idols. We had said as we sort of introduced Jonah chapter 1 that Jonah ministered in a time when Israel had given themselves over to the worship of, of idols. Jeroboam II was not the greatest king. He didn't put away the idols. And so he's ministering during this time where Israel is looking to vain idols. They're worshiping little, little false gods. In fact, that word vain, it means something like empty nothings. Empty nothings. And what Jonah's getting at, this, this, is, this is after Jonah has said, you brought my life up from the pit. And then in verse 8 he says, those who put their hope in, in idols, vain idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. He's saying to rely on idols is worthless because they cannot help. They cannot help. Listen to Jeremiah 2, verses 10 through 11. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been any such a thing. Jeremiah is challenging Israel for their turning to idols. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Israel worships the, the true God, they, they, or they had revelation of the one true God, Yahweh, but they, they've done what other nations don't even do with their little idols. Israel has exchanged worship of God for worship of creation. And these other nations over here, they don't, they don't change idols. But I want you to see in the text, he says, has a nation changed its God even though they are no gods? They're empty nothings. We saw this pictured for us in the first chapter where the sailors called upon their idols. The sailors called upon their gods. But what happened? The storm grew worse and worse. But the moment they called on the Lord, the one who has revealed himself in creation, the one who has revealed himself in the Bible, the one who, uh, you know, from Jonah's perspective, looking forward, would reveal himself in Jesus Christ. As soon as they called on him, and threw Jonah overboard, the sea ceased from its raging. So Jonah's warning those who are trusting in idols that it's worthless. They are nothing. They are worthless and they are purposeless. Those who pay regard to them, those who trust in them, he says, forsake their hope of steadfast love. They don't have steadfast love because they're, they're creation. They're fake. They're completely impotent. So Jonah warns his, his fellow Israelites to turn away from them and trust in, in Yahweh. And so what's the, what's the implication then? These idols don't have steadfast love. But Jonah's saying the Lord has steadfast love. He has covenant faithfulness. When we were walking through Ruth, it's Hesed. Those who trust in the Lord will find that He is full of steadfast love, that He is completely faithful, that He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and that He alone can act, and He alone can save. Jonah's saying, you know what, I could not save myself, and these worthless idols 
could not save. I was in a completely and utterly desperate situation where my only hope was to call upon the Lord. It's my only hope of rescue. So then notice that, so, so Jonah's thanksgiving psalm, right, his praise offered to God are really the overflow of his recognition that he had no other place to go outside of the Lord. He, he had to have relied on God alone to act and to be rescued. Right? That's where his thanksgiving came from. It's a desperate place. He knew he was going to die. So if that's true, right? If there, if there is a correlation between our admission of our own helplessness and our praise and thanksgiving to God, then we should allow our thoughts to run to God's mercy in our lives. Right? Here's, what I, here's what I'm driving at. When you, think about, when you think about past sin, maybe before you came to Christ, but even if you're a Christian and it's this past week, you know, we could come up with quite a list, even among those who name Christ, of Sins that were committed this week that should disqualify us from God's grace. But I wonder if you, when you think about your own sin, when, you, when it comes to mind, you know, like David said, my sin is ever before me. When you think about your sin, do you move past, like, woe is me? Right? Sometimes we think, you know what, I'm just going to hang out here. I'm going to wallow in this guilt. I, I, I deserve to be guilty, so I'm not going to turn to the Lord. But I'm convinced that the thoughts of past sin should not stop there with like, man, I'm a terrible sinner. It should then drive our minds and our thoughts to Christ, to God who acted on behalf of those who were helpless and could not save themselves. Look to the cross of Christ and see the supreme demonstration of God's mercy and God's steadfast love to the undeserving. Don't. Don't just, it's good for us to feel the weight of our sin, right? I'm not saying, oh, sin's no big deal. Don't feel guilty. No, the guilt is meant to do one thing, to drive you to Christ. Drive you to Christ. He saves the helpless. And he alone can, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord because Jonah couldn't save himself. He couldn't turn anywhere else. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one that is capable, right? But he's more than, than capable. Jonah means probably more than that. He means that he actually does exercise this capability. In other words, not only can he act, but he does act. And so our second point this morning, he alone is sovereign in salvation. Look there in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Right? We've seen in Jonah that the sovereignty of God keeps kind of bubbling here, here to the surface. Books like Esther, the providence, the providence and sovereignty of God is sort of working in the background. That's how you understand the book of Esther, that God is sovereignly acting. Uh, but it doesn't mention his work. In Jonah, it's more explicit. It's right in front of our face. Right? Sovereignty has become quite a theme for us, and what Jonah does, he even recognizes that he's in the water because of the sovereignty of God. He says, you threw me into the deep. He disregards the actions of the sailors who actually threw him into the water. 
Who threw them in? The sailors or God? Yeah, both. Right? Ultimately, Jonah's acknowledging that this is God's sovereign will. Nothing that has happened to him or can happen to him falls outside of God's sovereign control. Some have tried to say maybe, you know, Jonah's not, we've said this before, he's not like a hero. So some have tried to say maybe he's just blaming God. Maybe he's saying, you did this to me. But that's not the, the, the context of Psalm 2. It's a psalm of, of thanksgiving. I read it more like it's, it's a clear sight of what actually happened. The Lord did this. right? Even the sailors recognized that. They said, Lord, it's, you've done as it pleased you. Don't hold this against us. We're about to throw them overboard. It is the waves and billows, Jonah says, that belong to the Lord that have engulfed him. Ultimately, again, we mentioned this earlier, but he's afraid that he's been driven from, from God's sight. He's been brought down to the depths of the sea, and here it's attributed to the, to the sovereignty of God, and it's for Jonah's own good. It's for Jonah's own good. And the question is, is it possible for a good God to, to be sovereign over things that hurt? Over difficult circumstances, over, over suffering? How often I've been comforted by members of this church who remind me of the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of suffering. Many of you have heard the testimony of Johnny Erickson Tata. She suffered a terrible, I think it was a diving accident when she was a young, young woman and became a, a quadriplegic bound to a wheelchair. She had struggles. She had questions. She wrestled with what the Lord was up to. But eventually she said this, Today, as I look back, I am convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by His love. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brunt of some cruel divine joke. God had reasons behind my suffering, and learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. Man, what faith to say that my paralysis is the the result of God's love. right? So when Jonah says, you cast me in the deep, I don't think he's saying, you did this to me, you're the reason I'm here. I think he's he's praising God that you pursued me, even even when it hurt, even when you had to bring things into my life that felt like discipline and, and suffering. You were pursuing me, and ultimately it was for my good. Jonah's very aware that God is in control of all these events, including not only only throwing him overboard, but, but the sending, the appointing of the fish. So then who receives all the glory? It goes to the Lord. He gives praise and glory to God because of God's sovereignty in His miraculous rescue. So if you're to sort of outline the passage, like verses 2 through 7 are kind of their own section, and then 8 and 9 is like a response to what's happened. So if you notice, like verse 2 and verse 7, they sort of form these brackets that are marked by the Lord hears Jonah's cry. So look there again in verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. 
Then again in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So a last-second prayer, he remembered the Lord, meaning something more than just like a thought popped into his head. It means he, he turned and, and cried out to the Lord. A last-second prayer is met with a swift response. Jonah's sincere cry to the Lord is heard by him. He heard the pagan sailors in chapter 1. He hears his prophet in chapter 2. So once again, we see that this, this lack of obedience from Jonah, the fact that he's only about to receive what he's earned, right? Death, that's what I mean, not the rescue. He's going to receive the just outcome of his decisions. He's not an innocent sufferer here. These serve to highlight the grace and mercy of God when we read those words, he answered me. He answered me. Again, Jonah had no, no right. He says, you heard my voice. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. It came into your holy temple. The moment Jonah cries out, the Lord rescues. Because as we've said, God has been pursuing Jonah. He's been tracking him down. So what happens? The moment Jonah turns, the, the moment Jonah turns and calls out, the Lord's there. Because he's been chasing. Right? If you were to run from me for a thousand miles, right, and I'm not full of steadfast love like the Lord, you run from me for a thousand miles. If you turn around, you gotta come a thousand miles back. Right? But when Jonah's been fleeing from the Lord, and the moment he turns, the Lord answers his cry, and Jonah finds deliverance. The Lord acts in his sovereign mercy to rescue him. Jonathan Edwards famously said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I think Jonah's pretty clear picture of that quote. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Look there at the end of verse 6. Jonah's saying, I, I went down to the land. These bars are closed upon me forever. But there's that hope-filled word when you read your Bible. The word yet, the word but, it just floods the text with hope. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. I was in the pit and you brought my life up from the pit. God has done that, right? Jonah doesn't say, you threw out a life, uh, uh, you know, a lifeboat, and I was strong enough to climb into it. You let down a rope, and I was, I was smart enough and strong enough to cling to it so that we kind of work together in this rescue mission. That's not what Jonah says. Jonah says, I was dying, literally a second away from death, and you brought my life up from the pit. And that's why Jonah exclaims, salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? Whether it's sparing his physical life or saving him from the, from the gates of Sheol or the salvation from sins that we understand from the New Testament that is offered in Jesus Christ, salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? Charles Wesley, whose uh, 
hymns are sometimes more theological than his preaching was. He wrote this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. That's quickening, made alive. If you grew up reading the King James, it's, it's Ephesians 2. You hath, you hath he quickened. Your eye, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the story of anyone who is in Christ this morning. You were imprisoned in the darkness of night, the darkness of sin, and the Lord quickened you. He, he made you alive. You weren't, you weren't like floating around with a life preserver and somebody sort of helped you into the raft. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, walking according to this course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, indulging the lust of the flesh. But God, but God made you alive. The Lord made you alive. You arose and followed Christ. Here's a question I think we ought, to, we ought to be willing to ask ourselves. Does my theology lead me to say, to God alone be the glory? To God alone be the glory. Or does it leave room for me to glory in myself? God freely acts to bring about salvation, so salvation belongs to Him, and therefore all glory belongs to Him. That's the problem with, with, with the Pharisees that we saw in Luke 18. One of them goes in, he, he's, he's pretending to thank the Lord, but the content of his prayer is, thank you for that I'm not like this guy and this guy and this guy. He wanted to make it about himself. He wanted to say, well, I'm better than somebody else, so the Lord must be pretty, pretty pleased with me. The content of his prayer is all about how he has distinguished himself above his peers and deserves the love and acceptance of God. But if, if all the glory, if all the glory is to go to him, then salvation must belong to him and it must come from him. That's what we find in, even in the New Testament on this side of the cross as we reflect on our salvation. We, we know from the teaching of the apostles that God elected those whom he would save in Christ before the foundation of the world. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, in this world to take on humanity, live a perfect life, die as, as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sins. He bore our sins in his body. As, as the God-man, he could represent us to God. The Spirit opened our eyes, right? 2 Corinthians 4. The Spirit of God opened our eyes to see the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. He grants faith and repentance as, as a gift. He justifies purely based on the righteousness of Christ and not on our efforts towards being just in His sight. He sanctifies those whom are counted righteous in Jesus and if you are trusting in Christ this morning, He will bring you safely home one day, glorified in His presence. And it's His work. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's really why I think both chapter 1 and chapter 
uh, Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, they both end with different groups of people, sailors and Jonah, offering sacrifices and thanksgiving to the Lord. It's the response to God's sovereign mercy demonstrated towards the sailors and towards Jonah. And that's what Jonah promises in verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm sure that all of us here this morning have room to grow in, in understanding our salvation and understanding our, our sin before God and what it costs Christ. And, and then, in turn, we can grow in directing our thankfulness or our thanksgiving to Him. I think considering his, his rescue, considering the gospel, is a way that stirs our affections and turns our hearts to want to give thanks to God. And so uh, we, we want to meditate on the gospel. And I've got a couple books um, a while back. I think Lisa bought some extra copies of these. If you're, if you're particularly interested in a resource that might help you do that, I've only got two to give away. But I'd love to give you a copy or two. Um, on the way out the door, if, if you think that would help you. Salvation belongs to the Lord because He alone is capable. He, salvation belongs to the Lord because He is sovereign in salvation. And lastly, this morning, because He alone can conquer death. We've been arguing that since the moment Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, that it's been sort of this downward spiral, right? Down to Joppa, down onto the boat, down into the belly of the boat, down, down, down into the depths of the sea, to the seaweed wrapped around his head, to the roots of, of the mountains, the bars of Sheol closing in around him. He was as good as dead. But verse 6, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So God reverses the downward direction. Right? He's at the roots of the mountains, but what does God do? He brings up his life from the pit. From the clutches of death, God rescues Jonah. He does not abandon his servant to the grave. And what we learn in Jesus' teaching is that Jonah is a sign of the resurrection. Right? Look over in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, I'll give you just a second to flip there if you're trying to flip. Then some of the scribes, there in verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now this text is primarily a pronouncement of judgment on the Pharisees. Right? They haven't recognized the significance of Jesus, the significance of Jesus' miracles, the significance of Jesus' teaching. 
He's been performing signs that are pointing to who He is and what He has come to do. And so they approach Him and say, give us a sign, Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus isn't saying here that He's not going to do any more miracles, right, that sort of point to His deity or to His mission. What He's saying is, I'm not, I'm not going to do signs on demand for people who have already rejected Me. Right? He's not like a circus clown who does tricks when people come and say, hey, if you do this, we'll actually believe in you. Because Jesus knows the heart of man. They didn't need one more miracle. Their hearts were, were hardened. So he's not going to do any signs on command to try to convince them. If they aren't convinced already, even the resurrection won't convince them. You know, Luke did this, and we'll look at this again next week in Luke, and Matthew does it too in verse 41. He, he sort of condemns the Pharisees. So the, Ninevites, the Ninevites heard the message from Jonah. Yet Jesus, Son of God, came unto His own, and His own received Him not. So Jonah becomes a, a, a sign of sorts, to the, first to those he preached to in Nineveh. Right? He, he appeared to them as one who had been delivered from the judgment of God, delivered from the clutches of death. And so he, he calls out, judgment's coming for you. And they turn and repent. And Jesus says that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so he will be in the heart of the earth. Right? This is clearly a, a, a look at the death burial and resurrection or, or yeah resurrection of Jesus. Right? But Jesus says something interesting in verse the end of verse 41 there he says something greater than Jonah is here. Well, one way that Jesus is greater Jonah was nearly dead. He remembered the Lord and the Lord saved him. And he was able to pray from the belly of the fish. He was saved from death, but not before he actually suffered death. Jesus is greater in Jonah in that he actually did die. He was killed on the cross, as we've said, for a payment for sins. He was brought down from that cross, hastily buried in a tomb. And as we saw from John chapter 20 a few weeks ago when we uh, celebrated Resurrection Sunday together, that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. When the disciples showed up, He had risen from the grave. Jesus had not been delivered from death in the last waning moments of His life. Instead, He died, yet, yet the, the Lord did not allow His Holy One to see corruption. He didn't stay dead. The, the Lord resurrected Him, raised Him again to new life, indicating that He had then conquered the grave. He had conquered death. The resurrection is the announcement that the work has been done. It was the vindication of all of Jesus' teaching and of His perfect life and His sacrificial work. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
that vindicated by the Spirit is talking about the, the vindication that happened at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And interestingly for us this morning, that word vindicated, it's the same word we translate justified. The Spirit justified the Lord. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, the resurrection of Jesus was the declaration that He is completely and utterly righteous. That's what it means to be justified. To be declared perfectly righteous. And so the resurrection of Christ is a declaration that He's righteous in and of Himself. He must not have died for His own sins because He's righteous. He must have died for the sins of others. And so as Jesus was declared righteous, for those, because He is righteous in and of Himself, those who come to Christ, you're united to Him, and, and you're robed in that same righteousness. You're credited with the righteousness that He has and that He earned through His obedience to the Father. So those who turn from their sin, rely fully, throw yourself at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, gladly confessing that you have no other hope outside of Him. That perfect righteousness only belongs to Jesus. If you come to Him and call out on Him, it's given to you as a, as a gift because you are united with Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For who? Those who are in Christ welded to Him so that what He did is credited to your account. What He deserves and earned through His perfectly righteous life is credited to those who are united with Him by faith. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord because He alone can save, because He alone is sovereign in salvation, and He can bring life from death. He demonstrated it in Jonah, but more clearly, He demonstrated it in rising, raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And He today, the Spirit of God, is in the business of making people alive through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. Can we take any credit for this? Absolutely not. So all glory and praise and honor belong to God and to His Son, Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that leads to salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do praise You and thank You, recognizing that there's, there's nothing in us. We all had gone astray like sheep. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. Our feet were swift to do violence. Our mouths were corrupt as the sinful words of our heart poured forth. We were dead in sin. But through Christ, we might have eternal life. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you for his work. Lord, we praise you as the one to whom salvation belongs. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.